I want to talk about being committed to unity this morning, and, and uh, it's not because I come into a place and necessarily see problems. In fact, I want you to know that uh, I felt like it's been so warm here, and my family thanks you for, for all the kindness and goodness that's been shown. But this is a subject that is very dear and important to me because of churches that I grew up in and was a part of growing up, watching uh, the times that were good and watching the times that were bad. And I believe that it's an important subject, no matter if there is unity or if there is division in a congregation, for it to be on each and every one of our individual minds as members of a local family, a local church, to think about what I can do today for the unity in the future of our congregation. That's the thought process as we go through this, because unity is something in a congregation that, that is beautiful. That's, that's one of the things that David says to us in Psalms chapter 133 and 1. He said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Again, the scriptures are on the PowerPoint in the King James for your convenience. Uh, if you're following your Bibles, I encourage you to do so. The next scripture is at the bottom of each slide. He said it's good and pleasant, and in the Twitterverse, we don't use words like good and pleasant anymore. We use words like awesome and, and fantastic and wonderful and, and all these big words that seem so much better than good and pleasant. But that's the sentiment that he's trying to get across here. He said it is wonderful and it's awesome, it's incredible, and, and it is. It is a great feeling whenever there's unity in a congregation from the moment you walk through the door, maybe before you even get there to a worship service. It's such a good place to, to know that you're going to come into and you don't have to worry about, about being targeted or singled out or, or abused in any way. But you know you're going to come into a place where people love you and care for you and are going to welcome you with open arms. And outside of the assemblies, it's wonderful when there's unity because you know that during the week, whenever you need someone, they're there for you. And they're involved in your life and they care about your life and the things going on with you. Unity is beautiful and it's wonderful because it makes people feel safe. And it makes churches and people in churches strong. And gives them courage to live their life before God like they need to. And whenever we have that type of unity, when you do in your local congregation, it sends a message to everybody else in the world. Isn't that what Christ said in John 13? He said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. The way that we love in the church ought to be different from other organizations and groups. Uh, you might have some camaraderie and, and even good friends in some of the recreational groups that we're a part of, maybe even some religious societies, but there should be a marked difference in the type of care that God's people have for each other. You know, one of the things that interests me and in, in more of a sense of global unity, I guess, in the church, uh, whenever I'm talking to folks about how I met my wife and about the man that took me in for a couple of weeks, you know, to work with me on teaching, they go, well, how did you know him? And I'll say, well... You know, several years before that, I was at this meeting with, with these people in this church. Well, how did you know them? And, and you have to go back and you have to trace back all these relationships and all these meetings through your childhood to explain to people how you have such close relationships with people just all the way across the country that they'd let you come stay with them and teach you and, and eventually steal their daughter, things like that. 
Inside of a local congregation, I think that it sends that same message to people outside in our communities. And they watch a group of people who are there through thick and thin, invested in each other's lives. Not, not standing to the side whenever somebody's going through something hard. Not the simple pat, pat on the shoulder, I hope everything gets okay for you, we'll lift you up in prayer. But the day-to-day walkthrough. Whenever times are tough and the way that we celebrate and there's no envy and strive whenever great things are going on in people's lives, there is a difference and the world can see it whenever a church is truly unified the way that Christ called for his disciples to be unified. And whenever they see that difference, I believe that people who are seeking truth will want to be a part of that. See, unified congregations are growing congregations. From the first example in the New Testament we have of these churches, you look here at Acts 2, 46, and says, they, that first church, continue in daily with one accord in the temple and the breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added the church daily such as should be saved. The immense amount of time that these folks spent with each other, uh, invested in God's word, we see that here, invested in food. Church Christ folks were good at investing in food. Jameson reminded me that we do have, you know, potluck after this last night, so I I assume that's don't speak too long, we're going to eat, and I'm with him. But they're just invested in every aspect of each, each other's life, and I have to imagine The scene at Jerusalem, whenever the gospel is first preached and those thousands of souls convert to Christ for the first time, the energy in the air. And and I don't want to get too wild and mystic here, but you know what I mean. There is an energy. Whenever a congregation is unified and every spoke in the wheel is turning together and every cog is turning together, you feel that energy and and it's, I mean, I guess they call that synergy, energy that keeps on making energy. And to be a part of a congregation like that is exciting. And it's motivating to me as as, as a person. Whenever there are other people in the church working and getting along, it makes me go, what can I do too? I want to be a part of that. Unity has this great motivating effect. And churches that have real unity, they're active and they're working and they're growing. And I don't care if it's the messages on your sign that are changed weekly. I don't care if it's, if it's the doors that you're knocking on or if it's the people in your life that you're talking to. Folks in the world will see it. And I think that those true seekers will want to be a part of it. Unity creates growth. And I think that's what makes unity beautiful. It's a platform to preach the message of Jesus Christ and salvation. And it's a platform where all those who need care and help, that's you, that's me, and that's everyone else, we can get the medicine we need each and every day, each and every week, because we're taking care of one another. As beautiful and as wonderful and as fantastic as unity is, the opposite is true in the most extreme terms whenever there's division, horrible and awful and destructive. In Mark 3, Jesus was accused of doing things uh, in opposition to God, casting out devils and not in the name of God, but in others. And he said this about it, if a kingdom be divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house be divided against itself, the house cannot stand. He said, it's silly. It's silly because people that are working against each other fight against each other. They can't get anything accomplished. And you look in worlds today, nations today, do you see the nations that have been fighting civil wars for years and years and years? And where are they? They're third world countries. 
And I'm not saying that's every individual person's problem over there, but those nations that fight and bite and devour and war and war, they're perpetually fighting and warring. And what are they doing? They're, they're killing themselves off. And they can't pick themselves up and rise up technologically or, or economically or educationally or any of those elise, any of those ways. We can't do it. Because they're too busy fighting and warring and struggling against each other. And the church is the same way if that's how we spend our time. As an individual, if you participate in this type of fighting against each one another and doing things in opposition, whether it's to the leadership or, the, or to the shepherds or, or to the other sheep in the flock, it's going to cripple the congregation. The way that it's phrased here in Galatians 5, I think, is important. He says, Brethren, you've been called under liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. So we have a lot of liberties in life. There's a lot of things that I can do, maybe that suit my personality, <laughs> Sometimes my personality can get on some people's nerves. And some of you might have to be kind of patient with me. <laughs> my wife, you, you can imagine she's a patient person, you know, putting up with some of my liberties and my personality quirks. She's patient. Sometimes in churches, people take their liberties and they, they push them on others and push them on others and push them on others so they're problems. And I don't think that's always done maliciously. You know, in the churches that I grew up with, I felt like there were these little hobby horses that folks had. And, and one man might have this hobby horse and another man this hobby horse. And, and I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt here and think that they wanted the best for the kingdom and they thought that their way was right. But instead of being patient and kind of loving with them, they just slammed them down other people's throats until people couldn't take it anymore. And they'd fight and they'd bicker and they'd argue over those things. And you know what happened? The churches I grew up in divided. I remember division happening from the time I was four. And I know there's many of you here who can, who can relate to that. And I remember when I was four years old in Boonville, Arkansas, remembering the church there splitting and dividing and my family moving away. And I remember in 1993 and 94 and 5, whenever the churches were dividing in our area up in Colorado, I remember those divisions. I remember one day getting to play with my friends and the next day not getting to see them again until I was 18 years old. I remember those divisions and I was confused by them as a child and I watched so many of my friends who were a part of those divisions who were lost, who were lost in the commotion and lost in the destruction, lost in the hate and a lot of them that I remember from a small time, they're not in the church anymore. That's what happens in churches when there's no unity. We fight and we devour until folks are gone. Uh, growing up there in Colorado, uh, seeing elk was a common occurrence. And I remember one particular time driving in with my dad early in the morning, this elk herd on the side of the road, always there, love to see it. But this morning, I mean just right off the road, I, I'm from here to that door. Well, from here to that door, because it was on this side. But from here to that door, there were these two elk. And if you've seen them, they're magnificent beasts. The bull elk are massive antlers, you know, and, and just big, tall, muscular and a very territorial. And there was these two bulls fighting one another for rights to, to the herd and the harem. And, and they were going after it. And dad pulled over to the side of the road and killed the engine. And you could hear them grunting and snorting. You could hear paws hitting the ground. Fur was flying in the air 15 foot. And I don't know how long they went in it. But I think dad may have been late for work that day. We watched a long time. Each one of them trying to get the leverage on the other to, to hook in the soft underbelly and destroy the other one. And eventually the big one won. And he got the other one on the ground. And he kicked him and he stomped him. And he gored on 
on him and he was bloody, the one on the ground. And the one finally got up off the ground and he ran off. He ran off. And, and the victor, he, he strutted around his herd and he bugled a few times and he acted like he was, you know, the big dog. Well, he was. He was the big dog in charge. He won the fight. When we came back that evening, he was laying on the ground panting. He, he laid there for about two days. Or day, uh, not two days, a day. And the next morning, he was up again. He was worn out from that fight. He had battle wounds from that fight. The other one went and laid down after the fight. He never got up again. He died. Coyotes and the critters ate his carcass. And that's what happens to our brothers and sisters whenever we bicker and we fight and we devour one another. Somebody goes off because they can't take it anymore and they bleed spiritually from their wounds and they go somewhere where it's easier, somewhere where they don't have to take the abuse anymore and they're done. And they may never darken the door of the Lord's building again with His church. And even the folks who win, we carry this baggage with us, these scars that take years and years to undo. These new habits that take years and years to overcome, to become more loving and patient and kind. And it destroys churches. It's wonderful and as beautiful as unity is. Division is horrible and ugly. We need to be committed to unity. You know, it's not always simply in the sense of people just fighting and bickering and devouring uh, or maybe just arguing back and forth that caused those problems. Some, sometimes it's just not being as close as we ought to. Uh, not being close and we're locked in our own little worlds and our own selfish ways, I guess. And I don't mean that in the most aggressive of terms, but I was thinking about verse 16 here in James 3. And he says, where envy and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. And I saw that in the churches that I grew up in. I saw that it wasn't all the time that people were just in yelling matches and fighting with one another, but people weren't close. And so there were little envians and strives that they didn't talk about to each other and the problems didn't get handled. And the way it manifested itself sometimes was this. Somebody might see young Lee overtaken in a multitude or a host of problems and they'd say, I hope somebody would help that young man. But because they weren't close with me or they weren't close with my parents... They wouldn't tell me. They wouldn't tell my parents. And also vice versa out in the congregation. And so everybody, you can see the problems going on in one of those lives because as much as we think we can hide our sins or our problems, they're evident. Our sin always finds us out one way or the other. And we have these little issues and they need to be taken care of. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if you see a brother overtaken a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering your own self, lest thou also be tempted. We have a duty of restoring and helping one another. But if we're not close, if we don't have those relationships, what do we do? I hope somebody helps him but I can't do it. It might go bad. And it does when we're not close. And it does when those, those little divisions, those micro-visions, I don't know, that's not a real word, but you've heard lots of fake words this week. You get that. There's, it may not be this big glaring divide in a congregation, but this little lack of closeness in this family and this little lack of closeness between these brothers and, and these sisters it causes these separate lives, separate homes, and Satan loves it. Because he knows. He knows that someone isn't comfortable enough to talk to me, that he's got me cut off from the herd, and that he can eventually devour me. And he knows that with you. 
And that's how he destroys congregations, through these little bitty divisions, little bitty strives, this confusion, and then the evil work takes over my life because no one, ate, no one felt comfortable to help me with my problems. That's why the confusion never ever work is present. He goes on, though, in this passage, verse 17, he says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle. It's easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. If you're enjoying peace in your congregation and unity, God bless you. God bless you because that didn't just happen. It wasn't just one day we all joined up together and everything was beautiful and wonderful. Somebody worked at that. Probably you, hopefully you, you worked at that. I'm not a master of the English language, but I know what it means to make something. It means to create it. And peace and unity has to be created. You have to create that as an individual. You husbands have to create that. Set the tone in your families. You wives and sisters have to create that with each other. Even as as children, teenagers, little children, you have to work at creating that unity. And by being peaceful and by uh, being easy to be entreated and merciful and gentle and all these things, you can create something beautiful and good. This unity. And that takes work. That's what he says there in Ephesians 4, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace holds everything together. That word endeavoring there is, is effort. It's zeal. It's diligence. I look around the room and I guarantee you there's probably not a lazy person in here. When it comes to working a job or, or just living life, we know that good things, what is it, the things that are worth it in life are worth working for. That's what I heard a lot growing up. Anything worth it is worth working for. And unity is worth working for. And it's going to take your attention. It's going to take your heart. It's going to take your time to be this creator of unity and peace. Endeavor. Do you wake up on a mission? I don't know, maybe you wake up on a mission in life. Sometimes I just wake up bewildered, but maybe you wake up on a mission in life and you have all the things laid out in your day what you need to get accomplished. Starting with the way that you take care of your hygiene and what you're going to eat and and getting set for the day. Maybe you go to work and you have an agenda for the things you have to take care of and, and you're endeavoring that day to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. But when's the last time you woke up in the morning on a mission to do everything you could to make peace in your congregation, to create unity, to make the environment even better than it is, to do something for somebody else that will show them that you love them. I think that's the type of mission we need to wake up in in life. Not that we can't take care of those other things we ought to, but wake up and say, what can I work at today that will make unity even better? What can I work at today that will keep this bond strong? What can I work at today that is going to help somebody or heal somebody or rejoice with somebody? Whatever it is, unity takes work, and that's your work. And I challenge you, brothers and sisters, to take up this work and an endeavor to keep this unity in the bond of peace. I would say there are simple things that we can do that help with this, but maybe that's not the right. There are basic things. 
that we could do. Some of them aren't always easy, and I'd like to talk about some of the most basic things that we can do that can just help with the little nuances of, of keeping peace and creating unity and harmony inside a congregation so we, so you can be this beautiful and good thing for everybody, not just here, but the community around you. One of the first things we can do in life is just stop assuming things. In 1 Timothy 6 and 4, he, he makes one of those lists that we we see several times in the Bible about things we ought not to do. He said a person here, he mentions, is proud, not knowing anything, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy and strife, railings and evil surmisings. Evil surmisings is one of those things that really pops out to me. You ever evilly surmised about something, someone? How about this, guys? As you're, have you ever said, uh, I'd like to do this to your wife, and your wife said, that's fine? And then you turn around and went, what do you mean that's fine? And she went, I, I meant that's fine. It's okay. No, no, I know what fine means. Fine doesn't mean everything's okay. Fine means fine, whatever you want, fine. Do it your way, you always do. Fine is awful, right? And we just go crazy places in our mind with the word fine. That's evil surmising. Just planting the idea in our head that somebody automatically meant something negative. Stop reading between the lines with folks. Just stop reading between the lines. Whenever somebody comes in through those doors for your services and their handshake isn't quite as long as it was last week or they didn't get to you as, as quickly as they did the week before or, or maybe they didn't quite meet your eye line, don't think the worst about them. Maybe they're a little tired. Maybe they've had a rough week. Maybe they need you to pick them up. Maybe they just didn't even realize it was a shorter handshake. I don't know. Do you time yours? All right, we're good. <laughs> I mean, we don't do that kind of thing, but we make these little assumptions that turn into big things with people. We can see that in our own homes with the relationships with the people that we care about the most. Do you find it a crazy thing is that we can be kinder to the cashier at the grocery store than we can to our own spouse sometimes? We let our guard down. You're in a room full of people who were redeemed by Jesus, people who have humbled themselves at one point to go, I'm not perfect and I need help. Being a better person, I need mercy and I need grace offered to me. And these people are trying to live a life where they're doing the best that they can to emulate that love and to emulate that mercy because they've received it. Give people the benefit of the doubt that they're not out to get you, even if you think they are, even if they've given you good reason I mean, the truth is, sometimes I do hurtful things. Sometimes I've done a hurtful thing not out of an accident. Sometimes I do hurtful things because I'm meant to. Because there's some little bitterness in me at that moment, and I'll say something that I can't take back. It just comes floating out, and it's out there. You ever done that? You ever said something hurtful, done something hurtful, and meant to do it? I hope you haven't, but maybe you have. You're human. Even if somebody has come out and done it on purpose and hurt you, what you can do is, again, give them the benefit of the doubt. You ever heard of that? Mama used to say, you know, he fires a coal on their head. I know that's there in the scriptures. Not, uh, not recompensing evil for evil or railing for railing is what is told by Peter here. He says, whenever somebody has done something evil to us, he said, don't render evil for evil. Don't rail on railing. Uh, but in the opposite manner of what was given to you or contrary-wise, give a blessing. Knowing that ye are thereto called... They're unto called that you should inherit a blessing. You know what? If somebody does something to hurt you and they meant it, 
continue to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe this time it's not the benefit of the doubt that they didn't mean it bad, but they're just having a bad day. Give them the benefit of the doubt that they don't really mean it, that if they said something mean and ugly, it wasn't because they hate your guts, but because they made a mistake, a human mistake. And you know what you can do? Bless them. I had a hard time understanding, and I still do, I guess, sometimes, that concept of, you know, how when you heap coals of fire on their head, maybe it'll make someone else feel guilty. And then, like I said, when, I don't know, we'll go back to the fine thing. You know, there's sometimes my wife asks me if something's okay, and because I'm in a foul mood, I'll say, yeah, that's fine. And I don't mean that it's fine, and it's okay, and I love it. I mean, fine. And you know what breaks my heart? Is whenever my wife knows that I meant fine in a mean and aggressive way, and she sweetly says, thank you feel that small don't you whenever you meant something mean and someone else just comes right back with those soft words those kind words it just makes you feel like a dirtbag you can help somebody you can help somebody with that little kindness even if they themselves are stumbling in that moment even if they themselves are trying to to throw that dagger at you Turn it around and show them the love of Christ. Turn it around and offer them that kindness. Be pitiful. Be courteous, even if somebody else isn't being that way. Because you want to inherit a blessing. And even if that person never changes, maybe I'm a dirtbag for the rest of my life, but you shouldn't have to suffer because I choose to be mean. You be nice. You create that unity. You create that peace. That's you. You can do it. And maybe you'll impact folks who are struggling with that, that kindness, that being pitiful. I said that some of these are basic, but they're not easy. It's this whole relationship thing that gets real sticky and hard sometimes. Sometimes forgiving is just difficult. Ephesians 4 and 29, he says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. At verse 31, excuse me, in verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiven one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So instead of rendering those evils, he said, just, just offer good things. And he goes on through all of this, and he winds it up with forgive. You know, God, God says when he forgives... And he looks at our sins where we've done him wrong, that he can take those things and he can remove them from his mind as far away as from the west to the east. And that's incredible because you know what? I have a hard time shaking things. I try to move past them. I try to let it go. And there are sometimes I just can't shake the memory. And it's that memory sometimes that just destroys my ability to move on in a relationship. And we have that problem. And there are times, I'll tell you about forgiving, at times we, we just don't even want to forgive sometimes. I would rather at times feel justified in my anger because somebody hurt me and they hurt my feelings. I feel justified because what have I ever done to them? I didn't deserve that. And I feel justified in my bitterness whenever I recall it, every opportunity I have to talk about this person, and I feel justified whenever I treat them evil. We, we just feel justification in our lack of forgiveness. We have no justification for our lack of forgiveness. We have an obligation to let it go. 
We have a duty to let it go. And it is a blessing when you can. And that might take work. It's a basic point, but it may not be easy. It is something that has to be done with diligence. It's some, that's the reason why I said we have to endeavor sometimes to keep that unity in the bond of peace. It may take a lot of work. Somebody may have cut you deep. It may be very legitimate. You're hurt. But do it for Christ's sake. Do it for God's sake. Maybe that's what I have to remind myself and you have to remind myself whenever somebody does us wrong. They didn't kill my only son. Because that's what you did. That's what I did. And you remember that Jesus, he, he hung there on that cross. And as he's finishing it all up, as he's dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's of his life, he looked down on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. And you know what? People don't know what they're doing. Whenever they hurt you and whenever they abuse you and whenever they've misused you in some way, they just don't get it. They're just not getting it that day. And they don't realize they're hurting themselves and that they're hurting the Lord's bride and that they're hurting the church. But Jesus was able to say, just please forgive them. If you can't forgive them for their sake, forgive them for God's sake. If you can't forgive them for their sake, forgive them for, for your sake. I mean... Let's start somewhere, but let's forgive. Let's move forward. Let's find ways to rebuild bridges and unify because unity is beautiful whenever we have it, but it only festers and cankers and rots and gets even uglier when we hold on to the things of the past. This is your work, and this is my work in our congregations, and it's a good work. And it's a work that will glorify God. Stop bickering and let's be forgiven. Proverbs 18 and 24, a very simple verse, very basic verse. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Tell my kid, is my son especially, you notice he's a little bit shy. You notice that where he likes to hide is right behind mama's dress. You know, and tell him if you want to have friends, you got to be friendly, boy. And I think even as adults, we forget that sometimes. You know why? Because sometimes I need somebody to cater to me and you need somebody to cater to you. Sometimes I've had a tough week and I want people to, to lift me up and build me up. Everybody feels that way sometimes. Well, there's a lot of people, though, that they never break out of just the need, I need, I need. And then they, they feel bad because they never get as much as they think they ought to get from everybody else. And they walk into a building and they want me, 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 give to me, praise me, shake my hand, hug my neck, talk about me, me. But what have they done for somebody else? That does make you feel important. Whenever somebody is willing to give you attention and show you that kindness, mourn with you, rejoice with you, just have random conversation with you makes you feel good. Be that for somebody else, and I guarantee you're not going to want for someone giving to you. A lot of y'all know my dad. And, you know, my dad is a good man. Um, my dad has always been a member of the church, but not always been a supremely active member of the church. Uh, a lot of y'all know Pat Manning. Pat Man is a very educated man in a lot of ways. You've heard him talk. He doesn't say some of the words that I say. Any of the words, you know, maybe. But very educated man, very logical thinker, very polished. Uh, my dad's a common man, and that's okay. My dad has a hard time reading. He's not very well spoken. But Pat Manning took an interest in my dad. 
I remember that towards the end of me being a teen. And my, my dad has changed tremendously. He has a way of just making you feel like a million bucks, you know? And you know people like that. People who took an interest in you and you just feel so special because they're just friendly to you. And they care about you. For all the sermons given in his life, that's one of the things that sticks out to me the most about that man. It's the impact he made on my own dad in my life. Be that friend for somebody. Don't be that person who's always looking for you. When you walk through the doors at the service, don't go find the same seat that you've been sitting in for 30 years or however long you've been there and plop down and wait for everybody else to parade by your seat. (coughs) Go find, excuse me, go find a brother or sister and talk to them. Go hug a neck you haven't hugged in a while. Go ask about somebody that you hear being announced about that needs prayers at church. When when you're outside of the assembly, make phone calls or write cards or go make a visit or have somebody over to the house. Just be a friendly person. And this may be one of the most basic things that we can do. People are always, always looking for a place to belong in the church. And if they walk into a room full of friends, why would they want to go anywhere else? You want to create unity, brothers and sisters. Just be a friend. And you know what? You'll always have them. Because those friends will turn around and give right back to you. Those efforts, those efforts that we make in unity, they, they require time, not just the couple of minutes that we spend together in public worship a week. I am nowhere near a mathematician, but figuring up a while back, if you take out how much time on average we spend sleeping and eating and with our nine to five and our jobs and things like that, uh, the average Christian, I guess, I don't know what all that would entail, but three services a week or so, you spend maybe 8% of your time doing something religious if you're only coming to worship services. That leaves a lot more time, maybe less than that. Like I said, I don't know math, but it's not a very big amount of time. So there's a lot more other things. There are a lot of other things that we can be doing, making this effort to be friends and building one another up and working on this unity. First Peter 4 and 80 says, And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I'll tell you what love does. That's one of those two great commandments, right? Love God first and love your neighbor as yourself is the second one. He said you could fulfill any law in the Old Testament if you could keep those two laws. And the same rings true in the New Testament. You want to be able to do good things, you've got to have that love. Think about what this love does or this charity. He says it covers a multitude of sins. Now what that doesn't mean is that if you love me enough, you can wipe my sins away from the memory of God. It doesn't mean that. Jesus does that. What it does mean that whenever I sin against you, I hurt your feeling in your heart, it doesn't have to be a divider. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be the end of the world or the end of the congregation or the end of our relationship. We can work through it. We can move past it. We can be covered up and we can have good relationships. That's what love does. It's able to cover up our problems. It's able to cover up our personality quirks and even the liberties that might oppose one another in some ways. And he says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Spend time with each other. Whatever gift you've received, he said, give it in return. I think the bigger message here, we think about 
I think about, maybe you don't, I think about biscuits, I think about gravy, I think about good pots of coffee, and all the other things that that I've got to eat in so many wonderful Christians' homes, and those are great, (laughs) and I enjoy those. But the point here is the relationships built, and that people are willing to open their life up and say, come into my life, come into my home, come be a part of my family, and be strengthened by that. And you can do that, and you're going to help people. You're going to send them on their way after a more godly sort. They may be facing a tough time, and they may need a place that's a little bit more intimate and quiet, and not everyone else is around for them to say, brother, I've got a problem. Sister, I've got a problem. I need someone to talk about this with. And you can build relationships where you can handle things that can never be handled somewhere publicly. People will be comfortable talking about things they never thought they could be comfortable talking about because we've opened our lives up and we've given that hospitality freely as good stewards of what? Biscuits and gravy? Sheetrock? And flooring? No, good stewards of the grace of God. The gospel. Hospitality and open your life up is is about creating this goodwill and a platform to be able to teach the best in life, God's word. And I encourage you to spend more time with each other. Don't let the world sell you on the idea you're too busy. Make that time for each other. You need it, but these folks around you need it too. We need that time spent together. A testament of love, it was read about shortly uh, there from Romans 5, there's a different way that it is put. The way that God shows his love towards us was through the death of his son, the way that he gave him. First John 3 and verse 16, he says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up the bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him. In this congregation, y'all have men standing out of the back keeping watch over you while you worship safely. I know that may be a newer thing in our, in our day and age or things like that, but the concept behind it is this, is you have people back there who are willing to stand between you and harm, right? And that's a comforting thought. They are showing you, I am willing to put my life on the line. And I bet if we went around this room and we asked every person in here, would, how much do you love your brother? How much do you love your sister? Would you die for them? People would go, oh, yeah, I would do that. I'll lay down my life for you. And he says this is an obvious representation of how we can see the love of God because someone was willing to lay down their life. Do we have to wait for the opportunity to lay our life down for someone to show them how much we love them? That's part of the point here. That's the ultimate testament. We can see it, but he said, look, I mean, there's that button again. He said, we can do good for people. We can show them by the actions that we take. What is so much easier about thinking, I'll show you I love you by laying down my life? Is that more convenient? Is is dying for you easier than opening up my home? Is that easier than, than cutting a few hours out of my week? Is that easier than offering a kind word whenever, whenever you've reviled against me? Is that easier? There's all these things that we could be doing, offering the world's good, offering the Lord's good to people that can show them You love them. The question is, can your brethren see how much you care about them? You don't have to wait to the day that you die and lay down your life to show that. You can do it today. You can do it in the basic things. 
You can do it by being a friend. You can do it by being kind. You can do it by being tender-hearted. You can do it by, as you have an opportunity, doing tunity, doing good for all people. There's all these things that you can do to show people that you love them. Ultimately, does God know that you love the brethren? He says in chapter 4 and verse 20 there, If a man say, I love God, and he hates his brother, uh, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brethren whom he hath seen, uh, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? I don't like to be called a liar. And I know that I've made statements all through my life, oh yes, I love my brethren. But God's saying, I'm a liar. I'm a liar if I say that and if I don't do good and if I don't keep growing and endeavoring to do those good things for people. Showing love. He said, because you don't really love me if you're not showing love them. And make no mistake, love is shown. It's done in word, not it's done in word and deed not simply in word. Brothers and sisters, let's love in word and deed. Let's love by endeavoring, endeavoring to keep the unity that you have in a spirit of peacefulness. Let's do it by being pitiful and courteous and kind because unity is, it's beautiful. It's the best. It's going to promote a place for you to grow. It's going to promote a place for your children and your grandchildren to grow, for your nieces and your nephews. It's going to promote a place for your community to come in and to be able to learn and thrive. And you build that. You build that with the Lord's help. And God bless you in that. Maybe in your life this morning, you can look at your relationships and you think to yourself, I haven't invested as much as I could in the work of unity here. Recommit to that. Maybe you haven't necessarily been out there kicking people in the shins and calling people names, but you want to do more. We can do that. We can work with you. We can pray with you. We'll sit right next to you as we pray about it and pray it for ourselves. If we can encourage you to, to have more unity, we want to do that this morning. You know, ultimately, whenever there's a division or there's a problem with unity in a congregation is because somebody isn't unified with Christ the way that they ought to. You think that's true? I think it is. And this morning, if you're not unified with Jesus, that's the most important union you need to make today. In Romans 5, starting in verse 10, he says, For if when we were enemies were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. I'll tell you this, if you haven't received the atonement in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, you're not in unity with Him. You're in enmity with Him. You're His enemy. You're divided from Him. And that is, that is all the awful things we've talked about this morning. It's not beautiful. It's not good. It's not pleasant. It's not wonderful. In fact, you probably feel a lot of guilt. You probably feel a lot of guilt for the, the things that are wrong in your life. But if you want to fix that, Christ is a unifier. He's the greatest peacemaker 